Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I featured Dr. Eugenie Tsai. She joined the Brooklyn Museum in the fall of 2007 as the John and Barbara Vogelstein Curator of Contemporary Art. Previously, she was Director of Curatorial Affairs at MoMA PS1 in Long Island City, Queens, New York. Prior to joining PS1 in 2005, she was an independent curator with projects for the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the Berkeley Museum, and the Princeton University Art Museum. She held several positions at the Whitney Museum of American Art prior to becoming Associate Director for Curatorial Affairs. Among the exhibitions and installations she has organized are the mid-career survey titled Threshold, Byron Kim, 1990 to 2004, Robert Smithson, which received the International Association of Art Critics First Place Award for the Best Monographic Exhibition of 2005, and for Princeton University, Shuffling the Deck, the collection reconsidered. In 2021, Eugenie curated the Brooklyn Museum survey exhibition, Cause, What Party?, which included more than 100 works that included rarely seen graffiti drawings and notebooks, paintings and sculptures, smaller collectibles, furniture, and monumental installations of his popular companion figures. Additionally, in 2021, Eugenie curated the Obama portraits, the official portraits of President Barack Obama and Mrs. Michelle Obama, Kahendi Wiley's portrait of President Obama, and Amy Sherald's portrait of the former First Lady. Eugenie received a BA from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and a PhD from Columbia University. Please enjoy this episode featuring Dr. Eugenie Tsai. Eugenie, I want to thank you for joining me on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Phyllis. I am happy to be here. I'm delighted to talk to you because I love what I see taking place at the Brooklyn Museum these days. That makes me happy. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. (laughs) When in your life did you recognize your love for the visual arts? I was one of those kids who was always interested in art. And um, my mother was interested in painting in particular. Uh, I don't really know how I became interested in art. My parents were immigrants. So English was their second language. So I sometimes think that the way I really accessed the world was through 
visuals, um, ranging from works of art, but just to, you know, just the power of observation and, and looking at what's going on around you and analyzing it. I mean, that's really how I started. I mean, I've just been an incredibly visual person my entire life. And I sometimes wonder if my parents, because English was their second language, I didn't have a sense of a literary tradition or, you know, theatrical, you know, history. And, but, you know, what was around me was so readily available. So I always liked to draw and make things with my hands. And since my mother was interested in painting, we had books around. My parents were as good immigrants who wanted to become Americans, took us to museums and theater and cultural activities. So that was my beginning. And what inspired you to study art? I wanted to be an artist at a certain point in my life. And then when I was in college, I realized that I really wasn't talented or motivated enough to be an artist. Um, I took an art history course, which I loved and realized it it just opened a whole world to me. Um, All of these different traditions of art, which you could learn about but you didn't have to practice. Uh, So that was how I became an art historian. And then I was always very interested in contemporary art. I have to credit the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis for opening my eyes to contemporary art. I used to go there a lot, not only as a child, but in high school and um, just spend a lot of time in the galleries. And everything was kind of different and I didn't understand everything, but it was exciting to me. And I think that excitement is one of the things that led me to continue looking at contemporary art. Yeah, I was about to ask you what art movement turned you on as a young person. <laughs> well, it isn't any particular movement, which it, it sometimes are individual works of art. I mean, one of the works I saw at the Walker was Franz Marx. It was a painting of red horses. And I, you know, it's, I think it's one of their signature images, but I always looked at it and, you know, kind of puzzled over it before I knew anything about Mark, just, um, oh, what an interesting image of what, you know, what is it? And, you know, the works of art seem to ask these questions, uh, which kind of led me not down rabbit holes, but, you know, really kept my interest. And so I feel like, it was just a way for me to access culture and what was going on, um, art in general. Everything I know about Catholicism, I learned through Italian Renaissance art and all of the iconography of, you know, the Annunciation, the Crucifixion, the Resurrection, you know, all of the different symbols. And so different artists and different periods do that for me. Um, it just opens areas of knowledge that I might not otherwise look at or care about. But somehow seeing it visually and wanting to know more about it um, was the key for me. And have you been drawn always to figurative work? No, actually, you know, visiting the Walker, there was a lot of abstract work. And that also was fascinating to me. Like, what's this combination of colors or shapes? And the works were so expressive, um, even if I didn't know anything about the artist. Uh, and I realized that there was this visual language that could speak to viewers, spectators, even without reading anything, you know, without text. 
Yeah. So visuals and images have were kind of began to access knowledge as opposed to reading things. Wow, so interesting. What do you enjoy most in your curatorial role? Well, there are a lot of things. Of course, I enjoy working with artists and doing exhibitions. I enjoy working with the collection. I enjoy building the collection, acquiring works that will build on things we already have and um, kind of create uh, narratives, the possibility of telling different stories at the museum. I also enjoy working with my colleagues in curatorial, but also in other departments, conservation, exhibition design, registration, graphic design, because you realize that people have these amazing skills and that what you do as a curator is in part dependent on this entire team of people you work with at, um, at an institution. And I like working in an environment that is devoted to the display and interpretation of objects, of visual you know, works of art. I think audience is also something that appeals to me, the idea that you're making something, you're working with people to put something together, to create an exhibition that people will come to see and hopefully come away with something. And that something could be any number of things. It could be a kind of joyous experience or a transcendent experience, or it could be learning something about a new artist by reading the text, uh, or it could be just a place, you know, creating a place for people to come and think and, you know, wander around and from work of art to work of art and just have, you know, kind of enjoy what they're seeing or have just free association. And what's your relationship with artists like? <laughs> That's a good question. I think relationships with the artists can range. There's a wide range. Sometimes there are artists who were your friends and acquaintances and, and from your generation, people you came up with organically. Uh, I'm thinking of someone like Byron Kim, who is someone I met in Godzilla, the Asian American Art Network in the 90s, and who's someone, you know, I've known ever since then. So there are artists I've met kind of when I was coming up, and you're, you, you're kind of, you kind of move in the same circles. And then there are artists who you work with for various other reasons. And um, you're maybe not friends with them, but you generally are admirers of what they do. Or you're interested in learning more about their work. And often you're working on an exhibition and you're both striving to present the best possible exhibition. And you might have different ideas about it, but you know, you're both striving for the same thing. I've always enjoyed working with artists because they're also so different. Their artistic visions are tend to be different and mostly amazing. And so it's a privilege to get a window into how an artist thinks and you know how they make their work, what underpins their work, what they're thinking about in the studio, and how they're thinking about their audience if they are. So, yeah, it's really, that's a, a very, um, it's a really fun part of the job. Yeah, I would think so. Yes, but not without its challenges. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So what do you feel is the role of the artist? 
Well, there wouldn't be curators without the artist. <laughs> and I'm highly aware of that. So, you know, museums, curation, we revolve around an artist's practice and the, the art of creating and um, producing works of art. How do you feel artists impact our society and the way that we think? That's a really good question. And I'm not quite sure how to answer that because I think a lot of it depends on the artist. We have artists, I'm, I'm thinking of Latoya Ruby Frazier, who's in our collection, whose work I brought into the collection with our photography curator at the time. And I admired the work because it reminded me of, it was of Lewis Hine, an earlier photographer who was documenting the lower east side and really making works of art that would call attention to social issues that he felt needed to be remedied. So I think there are artists like LaToya, or there might be artists like Rick Lowe, who's a social practice artist, or artists like Simone Lee, who are very, uh, their practice and the, the art they make is really intended to raise our awareness of social injustice. Um, and, and in some ways are a call to action, but the call to action is done in a very poetic, powerful way. But then there are other artists who may want, who may be more interested in creating an aesthetic experience. And I think that's also very legitimate. And that might be an artist who's more interested in creating art that's a refuge or that, you know, from the world or creating a spiritual environment or a spiritual experience for individuals. So I think artists can play many different roles. The question is, do artists reach all aspects of our society? Um, or is it something that is intended more for, or maybe not even intended, but something that reaches people who have the time to spend with art, who aren't concerned with spending their days making a living? So I think it's a complicated question and a really good one. Interesting times that we live in. Absolutely. You know, how do you feel the Black Lives Matter movement will impact the mission of art institutions? Well, Black Lives Matter really called attention to the structural racism in institutions in general. And museums as institutions, you know, are also facing that reckoning. I grew up in the Midwest in Minneapolis, and it was a, at that time a largely Scandinavian population, Norwegians, Norwegians, Swedes, and some Germans thrown in. Uh, and I was acutely aware of always being the one of the few people who was not white in the room. I knew all five Chinese families in the local community. Um, I mean, it just made me feel early on the sense of being different and of being, as they say these days, not being heard and not being seen. And when I moved to New York, I felt so comfortable. I felt that I could blend into a larger population. I didn't feel that I was always on display. And I didn't feel that people were looking at me as someone who was different and always commenting on that difference. So um, 
in the 90s, I joined this group, Godzilla Asian American Art Network. And that was tremendously important to me. And I'm mentioning this, mentioning this as kind of a prologue to Black Lives Matter. I was in graduate school at the time, and I was studying all of the canonical artists. I know quite a bit about French Impressionism, 19th century French art, about Italian Renaissance art, American 19th century painting. And I really love canonical art, but I also realized that that is only part of the story. I was in Godzilla Asian American Art Network, which is a group of artists and arts professionals. Uh, we would have slide slams where artists would present their work. Um, we would have, a, we started a newsletter. This was pre-digital, so everything was done analog uh, with reviews and articles. And uh, it was a way of communicating with our local community and gradually to Asian American communities across the country. But what it did was make me highly aware that what I was learning in graduate school about European art was only part of the picture. What I was learning with Godzilla, you know, opened a world to me. And I just wondered if what I was learning through Godzilla would ever be taught in academies, would ever be taught in high schools, in junior high schools. So Black Lives Matters is really, it was like, okay, this is kind of really breaking it open. It, it's showing the, the white domination of, of institutions, how the stories that are told that these institutions are created to serve you know, a certain segment of the population. It's what we talked about earlier about power. The people in power get to tell the stories. And so I think it's incredibly important now that that is being questioned and that real efforts are being made, real strides are being made in bringing in stories that have been erased and, and creating a more truthful cultural, I won't say narrative, but showing different cultural narratives, um, which are so important. Representation is important. And I know sometimes people say, oh, representation isn't enough. And I agree. But I think representation, seeing yourself represented in a cultural institution as a subject and a maker is incredibly powerful. And it's even more powerful if you think about representation in terms of a staff and in terms of a board uh, of an institution. So yes, the reckoning, as everyone mentions, is, is I think having a great effect. Where it goes and how far it can go, I don't know. I think alternatives to the current cultural institutions will probably arise and I'm looking forward to seeing what those might be. So the, the movement was impactful. Do you think that's short-term, short-lived? Do you feel that long-term we'll continue to see the positive impacts of the movement? I think we will. I think we will see um, long-term impact from Black Lives Matter. And I think I, I had a, a colleague say to me, um, what happens is the needle always moves forward and then it moves back, but it never moves back as far and it keeps moving farther and farther forward. And I, I said, oh, I, you know, I think that's, a, a good analysis, and I and I'm going to believe that. Um, I think it's true, and I think things are moving so quickly that it's going to be impossible to move back completely. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. Do you feel black art can be defined? Oh, do I feel Asian American art can be defined? <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> no, I wanted I to ask that question. <laughs> I don't. Uh, again, it, it, there nothing is monolithic, and 
for example, even the term Asian American, as has been discussed in recent articles, um, harkens back to discussions we had in the 90s uh, in our Godzilla meetings, which is, you know, what does Asian American mean? You know, what does black art mean? So Asian American, how can people who are new immigrants from China and fourth generation from South Asia you know, what do they have in common? You know, and so communities, those terms suggest something monolithic and, and, and capture none of the nuances. And, and that's what's challenging, I think. We want to present nuance, but yet we want to acknowledge groups that have been erased, omitted, and whose stories have been never told. And I think it's challenging to strike that balance. But we see it happening. We do. We do, definitely. Certainly at the Brooklyn Museum, which I'm going to plug that. (laughs) Yes. So what are you excited about now? I'm always excited about something. I'm excited about a show, an artist I'm working with now, Guadalupe Maravilla, who is working on an exhibition with us um, that's opening in early April. His work is very much about healing and um, about immigration and displacement. He is um, from El Salvador. When he was eight, he fled the Civil War in El Salvador, uh, smuggled overland alone, I mean, with a group of children and um, coyotes, to meet his undocumented parents in the United States. And this was clearly uh, left him with a, you know, it was a very traumatic experience. And then when he was studying art at Hunter as a graduate student, preparing for his thesis show, he was diagnosed with third stage cancer and immediately went into treatment. So um, he, he, the treatment worked, but he was left with residual pain. And through friends, he learned about this kind of healing, which used gongs, sound baths, And the vibration of the gongs was believed to cause vibrations in our bodies. Well, we know it does. Our bodies are made up largely of water. Um, And these vibrations would release toxins that were in the water and kind of release diseases that were harbored in our bodies. So um, there's also, there's a kind of cosmic element to the gongs. There's almost like a music of the spheres and it aligns the body in a way with I would call cosmological forces. So you may be familiar with his work. He did a large installation at Socrates Sculpture Park this summer, uh, where uh, this large outdoor installation with many different gong-like structures, a garden with medicinal plants, and he hosted a number of sound baths for the public and also special ones for cancer survivors or families of cancer survivors. So I'm excited about his work because I think it touches on so many timely issues. Of course, we're living it during a pandemic and we are all, some of us physically, some of us psychologically, some of us both facing trauma or feeling traumatized. So to be working with an artist whose art is devoted to healing um, is, is really remarkable and special. And so I'm extremely excited about it. He works with undocumented communities as well. And again, a a topic that's front of mind for for many of us. 
uh, and and just the the need for care for those communities in particular is is very important. Well, it's fascinating. It's evolving, yes. <laughs> We're getting closer to our final layout, and it's very exciting. My goodness, I can't imagine. And the Obama Portraits Tour was also very exciting. The Obama Portraits Tour was incredibly exciting. Um, Kahende Wiley is someone I've worked with before on several occasions, and I'm such a big fan of his work, and I think the portrait is extraordinary. And Amy, I've never had the opportunity of working with, but I have admired her work ever since I saw it. And um, she's definitely someone whose work I would love to add to our collection if the opportunity ever arises. So that was a really special exhibition to work on, especially because I had seen the Obama portraits in Washington, D.C. I made the pilgrimage early on and waited online to see each portrait. The wonderful thing about showing them at the Brooklyn Museum is that they were presented side by side in a way that they weren't at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington. But of course, it was the way they were in real life. And so I, re- I, I treasured that. And also a number of you know people in our community could not travel to Washington. So it was wonderful to host the Obamas at the Brooklyn Museum for um, our allotted period of time. Uh, And then we were also able to point people out to things in our collection because, of course, presidential portraits, they're about the way the sitters look, but they're also official portraits. They're about the roles that these individuals fulfilled uh, and that they will be seen by posterity. So sometimes people would say, well, they don't exactly look like the sitters, but they will want to be seen like this 100 years from now. People will want to see them like this 100 years from now. I mean, so there's a certain gravitas that I think the artists imbued the sitters with that maybe diverges slightly from what I would call photographic realism, but is very, very true to their actual self-presentation. I did see them side by side, and it was wonderful. It was great to see. Yeah. And they were so different, but yet both powerful. You know, you use that word abstract and I mean, you know, the floral of Kehinde's background versus the the abstract pattern on Mrs. Obama's dress and the blue background, which was so celestial. Each one took the sitter out of this world into a different world, but in a different way. Yeah. Interesting perspective. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Our final question is, how do you want to impact the art world? Well, that is, if I thought I could impact the art world, (laughs) I mean, that's just such an amazing question. Um, What I I hope to do and, and what I think I have done is is tell some of the stories that haven't been told up to this point and broadened the canon and enlarged our view of contemporary art history. Um, And I don't mean to sound pretentious about that, but I, I am proud about some of the exhibitions I've done and works that I've brought into the Brooklyn Museum um, and into other museums. One of 
my proudest acquisitions was at the Whitney. It was the Martin Wong Kissing Fireman. I've forgotten the title, but I remember when that was accepted by the collection committee, and I was so thrilled that his painting would be in the collection of the Whitney Museum for people to see. Um, because no matter what we think about museums, they do shape our view of cultural history. And so having a work in a collection where it can be taken out and shown, um, I think is really important. There is a show that I have up right now called The Slipstream, Reflection, Resilience, and Resistance in the Art of Our Time. That has a number of artists I think are important for now and for posterity. And so that's the kind of exhibition I'm, I was proud to do. And I, I would like to do more of creating narratives that center artists of color, creating narratives that focus on connection, that focus on collaboration, um, that focus on spirituality and joy. But I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I think I'm, I'm trying to think of how one has impact in the art world. So I'm just saying I'm doing these small things and I'm hoping that the small things I do um, will add up to, to have some meaning to someone, to visitors or something in the future. Oh yeah, no question, no question. You are definitely uh, having an impact. Just the way you think is uh, having an impact. Uh, thank you so much, appreciate your time. Oh, no, it, it was a pleasure to speak to you, Phyllis. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. 